Let's join together in prayer once more. Let's pray. Father, as we come once more to look upon your word of truth, we do ask again that you will indeed open our eyes, that we may see you as you really are, that you will open our ears to hear and understand the message of your truth, and open our hearts to receive that message, that we might not be hearers only, but also doers of your word. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The night um, Elizabeth was born, I, uh, for those who don't know Elizabeth, our new daughter, uh, the night she was born at about half past one in the morning, I phoned uh, to tell my parents. Now that doesn't sound particularly uh, a particularly interesting story until you understand that the day before was the 13th of July, which actually meant that it was the 12th of July in Northern Ireland terms, because the 12th fell on a Sunday. And when the 12th falls on a Sunday, it moves to the next following Monday. So when is the 12th not the 12th when it's on the 13th? So Louise had gone into labor uh, early on the 13th morning. Um, and at about 9 a.m., uh, my father phoned to see how we were. Um, Louise was over uh, a week over, overdue at this point, I remember, as well. Uh, and I knew Louise, and I knew she was in labor, but we didn't say anything to dad or mom. Um, in fact, I manipulated the conversation so well that we didn't even talk about that at all. Uh, and as far as he was concerned, there was nothing new happening at all. Uh, he was just, we were still waiting. Um, I knew if I told him um, as he went off to the parades, he wouldn't settle all day. And he's a dodgy ticker anyway, so I didn't want to give him any excuses to have any problems. Um, and as well, I knew that they were going to be meeting up with all the folks and they were going to be asked to whole load of questions, and they were going to be phoning all day. So they spent the day on, uh, at the parade, and all the family were there asking, well, any sign of the baby yet, etc., etc.? And no, they said, no, no, they're still waiting, nothing, nothing yet. That night, they had a barbecue at the house. My aunts and uncles were there. Still, they didn't know anything at all. Then Elizabeth was born about half twelve, on the 14th morning. And then, as I said, I phoned my parents at half one. Needless to say, they got quite a surprise because they didn't know that Louise was in labor. They weren't expecting it just at that moment in time. They got a shock, but a good one. Sometimes things happen that are just not expected. They appear from nowhere, and suddenly our lives are changed in some way. And this is the case in the story of Elisha, as he is called to the work of a prophet by Elijah or more ultimately by God. Continuing from what we looked at this morning in this passage, we see that God is about to carry out His judgment in Israel through three people, Hazel, Jehu, and Elisha. And here we have the commissioning of Elisha, who is then going to carry out this task of judgment on Israel. As we read on in 1 and 2 Kings, we find that Elisha's, Elisha's ministry in Israel will be one of judgment but also, like we said this morning, mingled with grace. God has a purpose, and Elisha is the man who will do his will. Now, Elisha has a unique place in the history of God's redemption from Genesis to Revelation. He is Elijah's successor, the one who would come after him, and indeed, there is a pattern in Scripture of this. If you think back to Moses, 
who trained Joshua to be his successor, successor after him. And remember, of course, Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew Joshua. Then we have here now Elijah, whose name means my God is Yahweh, who is to train Elisha to carry on the work after him. And Elisha's name means God is salvation. Then the final great pairing in Scripture, of course, John the Baptist, the great prophet at the end of the Old Testament era, who, like Elijah, uh, called people to repentance and sought to, to turn people back to God. And he was, of course, succeeded by the final prophet, who completely and fully revealed God to the world, who was the Word become flesh and dwelt amongst us, who came bringing grace and will come again in judgment. Jesus came to bring salvation to God's people, and like Joshua, caused his people to enter their inheritance. You see, the story of Elijah and Elisha needs to be see, seen in the light of the entire Bible story of what God is doing to bring salvation to His people. Elijah and Elisha here were prophets in the Old Testament sense. Now, nobody now can claim to be a prophet in the same sense as they were, because the final prophet has come, the Lord, the Lord Jesus. So, in one way, this is a very unique call, a unique event in to a call given to Elisha here, <clears throat> and he exercised a unique office in God's history as a prophet. But that, of course, doesn't mean then that we, can, uh, we can't learn anything from what happens here and what happens to Elisha. And indeed, in some ways, uh, when we talk about a calling, God's calling is always the same, uh, the calling that He gives to His people. For it shows us here that God's call is a sovereign call, again following our theme from this morning. That basically means that when He calls, we must obey. He has the right to call, call who He wants to do what He wants after all, and we must recognize that and understand that the only response really is obedience. Elisha was out doing what most likely he had always done, helping on the farm, and then out of the blue, Elijah shows up and throws his mantle or his cloak on him, symbolizing the fact that he was passing on uh, his profession to uh, Elisha. But if Elisha in the field was surprised by all this, God certainly wasn't. In fact, it was all part of his plan from beforehand, wasn't it? He had told Elijah the exact person he wanted to do the exact work that he wanted. There was really no running from that. There were no excuses you can make, like, I'm not gifted enough, or I can't cope with the pressure of that, or that's not what I want to do with my life. When God calls, we must obey. And when God calls you when it's your work, and you're the one to do it, well, no one else can. And don't think for a second that it's, we're just talking here about people who are, who are called to the ministry. That's a that's a, a big mistake that people make. When people talk about calling, it automatically seems to, to go from ordinary Christians to ministers. That's an excuse that a lot of people use. That's to do with ministers, not us. In fact, I would argue that there isn't any sort of call to the ministry. It's a call rather to exercise the gifts God has given. A call to be Christians, to work for the gospel, no matter what area of life God ordains you, for you to do it in. 
It might be 9 to 5 on Monday through Friday on the, in the office. It might be on the farm. It might be in the university. It might be in a school. It might be in the ministry. It might be as a youth worker. Whatever it is, the point is God calls us to exercise the gifts we have to build up the body of Christ, the church, so that the church can do the work that He wants it to do, make disciples of all nations. See, as New Testament believers, we can't just sit around and think, well, the only people who are called here are the minister and the elders. We are all called with God's sovereign call to do the work He has for us to do in the place He has sovereignly put us can't hide behind excuses. God's call is undeniable. What we need to be thinking is not, am I called? But rather, what gifts has God given me to fulfill His calling? For if we consider Paul, for example, in his letter to the Ephesians, as he writes to the whole church, and as he explains the gospel in the first three chapters, he then goes on to the implications of that gospel in chapter 4. And how does he begin in chapter 4? As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What is the calling? It's the calling to be a Christian. It's the calling to live the Christian life, to serve and honor God in that life. And Paul continues in that same chapter. He talks about the way this works itself out. In the church, in verse 7, he says, But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ appointed it. This is why it says, He when he ascended on high, he led captives in his tree and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors, teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You see what Paul talks of here? God gives apostles, He gives evangelists, He gives prophets, He gives pastors and teachers, and these exercise the gift of word ministry. And what do they do? They prepare everybody else for works of service, or better translated, works of ministry. You see, it's all our task to be involved in the work of ministry, to be involved in the work of gospel service. It's not just David's task, my task, or the elders' tasks. It's all our job. We're here to equip all the rest of us to do and exercise our gifts so that the body of Christ is built up. So we as a people here are built up so that we work, work for Christ. The whole area, this whole area of calling is very, in my opinion, misunderstood in the church today and very ma badly mishandled uh, for some people. People wait around looking for a flash of light or a great experience so that they can know what their calling is. And for some, that actually might happen. Let's not limit God after all. But as far as the New Testament is concerned, we are all called to do the work of ministry. God's call is a sovereign call to action, and it can't be ignored. If you're a Christian, it is a call to service. J.I. Packer, I think, said in one of his books, Christianity is no armchair religion. It is a call to action. And let me just say something as an example of anyone here who might be considering a call to the ministry. 
I went through all that stuff before, um, and in my opinion, it was badly mishandled, badly misunderstood. I kept being asked at interviews, uh, please explain your sense of call. And they wanted this experience or this feeling in some way that I knew that I was called to the ministry. Well, I never had any of those experiences. And we need to be very, very careful in thinking like that, that it is necessary to have those experiences. For I will say this, I know lots of people, lots of people in the so-called church that have been called to the ministry, when in fact, from a biblical perspective, they are directly contradicting the teaching of Scripture being in church leadership at all. And yet they would maintain they have been called. You see, we can't throw out this office of pastor, teacher, some kind of super spiritual office where you need a direct word from the Lord before you can take this office up. Rather, if that's what you're thinking about, then the stuff you need to consider is rather, am I able to teach? Am I able to preach? What are my gifts? What gifts has God given me to exercise for the benefit of the church, that it might be built up, that Christ might be glorified, that the mission of the church might be brought forward? You see, the call to the ministry of the Word is actually a call of the church. It's the church's responsibility to look out for those who have gifts of leadership, gifts of teaching, and then ask these men to serve in the church. Isn't that the way we call elders? Why is the pastor-teacher any different? You see, when I was going through my interviews, the questions I should have been asked by the church were not, what is your sense of calling? but rather what gifts do you have? And these should have been assessed and recognized by the church if I did, in fact, have them. That is God's call today, a sovereign call to us, a call to be Christians, to work for the church, to work for Christ, so that the Word, in the words of Paul again in Ephesians, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forward by waves and blown here and there, by every wind of teaching and by cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Him who is the head, that is Christ. From Him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in, in love as each part does its work. God's call is a sovereign call to all Christians. Moses prayed during the time of the Exodus and asked God that all God's people would one day, he wished that all God's people would be prophets. All God's people would have the Spirit. And in a sense, that was fulfilled at Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out on the whole church. All God's people were anointed with the Holy Spirit to do the work of ministry. But secondly, let's look again at this call in, in terms of the cost of God's call. Elisha was plowing in the field with 12 pair of oxen. Now, that basically means that he was from a pretty well-to-do family, if they could afford 12, afford 12, 12 pair of oxen. It must have been a pretty big field. And once Elijah throws his cloak over him, he leaves leaves him and runs after him and asks, let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. To which Elijah replies, go back. What have I done to you? 
I think this response of Elijah would be better understood in terms of, remember what I have done to you. Now, some people want to criticize Elisha here for returning to his parents at all, uh, and they quote the Lord Jesus in Luke 9, no one who puts his hand on the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. But it must be said that the situation is different in both cases. Firstly, Elisha here goes back to end his links and literally, literally burns his ties to his old profession and life. Whereas the men in Luke 9 were more divided in their mind, looking to take care of things in their own lives first and then come and follow Jesus. They desired to go home and put off kingdom service. Elisha here goes home to actually begin his service. The burning of the plowing equipment and the slaughtering of the oxen are a sign that Elisha is completely severing all his links with a previous life. The plow would no longer come into his mind. He was totally set on following after Elijah and serving him. There was no foot in both camps here. It was a total change of life and mindset from the farm to the kingdom of God, from plowing the fields to the fields of God's service. Jesus Himself would say, if any, anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. There's no escaping the cost there is and the need for total commitment to the call of God. Jesus uses very, very strong language to show just what sort of commitment is required from His followers. And we need to understand that if we are called to God's service, then there will be a great cost. Consider Elisha. He was probably from a very well-off family, would no doubt, uh, if Elijah hadn't come along, he would have led a very prosperous life. Materially, he could have maybe had all he would ever have wanted out of life. All his prospects were good. Yet he had to be willing to leave all that behind. All the earthly security he had would have to be given up, and he would go with Elijah. There would be no more steady income, no more nice comfy bed to sleep in at night, no meals on the table three times a day. He had to make that sacrifice. And as Christians, we need to be aware in an economy-driven individualistic society that there is a cost to being a Christian, to following Jesus Christ. We, like Elisha, might have great prospects, great ideas, what we want to do with our lives, and parents for our children as well. But how often we get bogged down running after the idols of materialism rather than following Christ. We naturally crave that security that comes with money in the bank account or a bigger home. You see, it's much easier to have confidence with more money in your bank account than it is to have confidence in the gospel. We like the security. We like the security of knowing that the future will be okay, that we will have enough to be comfortable, that favorite word of materialists. Elisha set off, and he did not know what the future would bring. He couldn't plan out what he was going to do uh, what was going to happen in the next year, which weeks he was going to be on holiday, which weekends he was going to visit the family. He had to find his security in God's provision, not his own. 
He couldn't just decide, well, I need a little extra cash this week, Elijah, so I'm heading off back to the farm for a little while just to earn a wee bit more. His commitment had to be total. And Jesus demands total commitment. We can't be double-minded seeking our material wealth and that of our children above Christ and serving Him. There is a physical cost to Christian service in terms of money, in terms of wealth, in terms of climbing the ladder of success, in terms of health sometimes as well. We need to be aware of that. Costs. Think also here of the emotional cost and what is involved in this call. Elisha had to leave his family, his friends, all that he had probably known from his childhood. He had to be willing to give it up, give up those emotional ties. Yet this is the cost that Jesus speaks of. We cannot love our loved ones more than we love Him. We cannot let our emotional ties distract us from our service to Christ. And that is hard and that is difficult sometimes. The example that comes to mind would be Caroline White as she heads back to Pakistan. I'm sure if you were to ask her, is it difficult to leave her family or friends, all that she's known? She would probably say, yes, it is a wee bit. Yet that's the reality of the call, isn't it? It's a call to make our priorities certain, to set out that which is most important and be willing to sacrifice that which isn't. Are you willing to count the cost? Or are you still in two minds? Still wanting to hang around the farm rather than burning your links to the old way of thinking and follow Christ. Maybe you're not even a Christian here tonight. Maybe you're wondering, is all this Jesus stuff for you at all? Please be under no illusion. Christianity is no soft option, no easy opt-out. It's demanding. It demands commitment, and it will cost you. And if you are a Christian here tonight, is Jesus' call dominating your whole life? Or are those other false affections, idols lurking around there under the surface, are they keeping you from 100% commitment to Christ, keeping you from burning completely an old way of life? And finally, let's look at the humble obedience required to obey God's call. Humble obedience required to obey God's call. Elisha had burned his bridges. He had feasted on barbecued oxen. He had said his goodbyes to his family and friends. And now he sets out to follow Elijah and become his attendant. Elisha didn't run after Elijah and tell him, well, your time's up now, Elijah. Move over. It's my turn now. Rather, Elisha had to serve his time, learn from his master. Not, by, not maybe a precisely what you'd expect from a person who only a few verses back had just been specially picked by God and commissioned for, to do his work. Yet that's the way Elisha had to carry out his task. It would be Elijah's, he would be Elijah's attendant before he would re replace Elijah as a prophet. In fact, if we turn over to 2 Kings 3 and 11, we find there that the king of Judah and the king of Israel proposed together to attack Moab and before they do, the king of Judah asks if there is a prophet to inquire of the Lord. We read, but Jehoshaphat asked, is there no prophet of the Lord here that we might inquire of the Lord through him? An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Saphat, is here. 
he used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. See what ministry Elisha had? He poured water in the hands of Elijah. Not at all like the latter ascending position-grabbing selfishness that is displayed in our economy-driven world in the West, is it? Elisha really did start at the bottom pretty ingloriously, it might be said. But that was God's call. That's what he was called to do, and that's really what matters, isn't it? You see, the kingdom of God is a little bit topsy-turvy compared to worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom tells us that it's good to be at the top, to seek the higher-paid jobs, to get up another rung on the ladder, to be more successful, to move up on a higher-positioned job, to have more people under you. Success is gaining much wealth and power in the world. But in the kingdom, the way of greatness is the way of service. The way up is actually the way down. But that's not naturally the way we think, is it? We naturally want to get to the higher positions so that we can be successful, so that we can have recognition from people. If we really look deep into our hearts, if I really look deep into my heart, am I content with pouring water on Elijah's hands, serving tea and coffee, stacking chairs, doing creche, clearing up when everyone else is away, organizing rotas? Are we content with the gifts we have, or do we covet other people's gifts? Because we want more recognition. Are we, do we have that twisted perversion of sin in our lives? Of course we do. It makes us naturally want to ascend the ministry ladder as such, to have the recognition, to have the fame that goes along with it. We can all be like James and John in Mark 10, wanting to sit at the left hand and the right hand of Christ, can't we? if we're honest, wanting the best for number one. Yet sometimes we're called to do the inglorious things, for that's God's call. That's the gift you're to exercise for the benefit of the body of Christ. And sometimes it will be a thankless task. Sometimes it will annoy you if you don't feel you get the recognition you deserve. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples after the request of James and John, after they'd come to him and asked him, can we sit both one on your left and one on your right in your kingdom? This is what he said. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Greatness in God's kingdom is to be a servant of all. It's totally different than the world and and its practices. It requires humility. It requires us to look out from ourselves and to look to others. It requires us to understand that we're not king of the universe. Rather, we're the Lord's servants called to do His work in the world, called to exercise the gifts we have been given for the benefit of others. And it takes humility to obey God's call. Elisha would have to pour water on Elijah's hands before he did anything else. He would have to learn that true greatness 
is found in giving, not in receiving. Have we learned that lesson? Have I learned that lesson? Or are we still wanting to get out and go to the top? Still coveting other people's gifts? Still selfishly desiring recognition? Some eight years after entering university, Dr. Helen Rosevear, aged 28, with a degree in general medicine and surgery, was on her way as a medical missionary to the Belgian Congo under the auspices of World Evangelization Crusade WEC. That was in 1953. She never imagined that her task in establishing Christian hospitals would be easy, nor did she dream of how great some of the problems would be. She's written two books, Give Me This Mountain, and He Gave Us a Valley. And in them, she tells much about her experiences and the trials she endured in the Master's service. The worst and most dangerous experience was during the Samba uprising and civil war that convulsed the newly formed Republic of Congo. It was then that she was brutally raped, as were other missionaries, and the young black male student nurses who tried to save her from being savagely beaten to death, they were savagely beaten to death by rebel soldiers. That was followed by five months of captivity. Later, she was rescued by the National Army and given a year's furlough. Dr. Rosevere returned to the Congo or Zaire and gave seven years devoted service to the Evangelical Medical Center in southeastern Zaire. She returned home in 1973 after 20 years missionary service, but never retired from the Lord's service, remaining a true missionary of the cross wherever she went. How did this devoted missionary view her many arduous years of service? She tells us, and I quote, I suddenly knew with every fiber of my being that these 20 years had been worthwhile, very, very worthwhile, utterly worthwhile, with no room left for regrets or recriminations. Wherever and however the Lord calls us to serve Him, it is always well worth, well worth it, whatever the cost. Let's pray.